Jack Spirito with the Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And today we are flashing back to episode 345, an interview with Christopher Nidges, originally done December 28th, 2009. This is the last of, I guess, the first pass of interviews that came out of Dirt Time 2009. Uh, There was a whole bunch of really cool folks, mostly in the bushcraft world, that I met at that, and uh, Chris was the last in line from that group of interviews. A couple of those guys, uh, specifically Dave Canterbury and Ron Hood, uh, I had on again, and actually both of them are pretty close to coming back around with other interviews in the Friday Flashback series. But this kind of ends that first pass through. Uh, it kind of dates things too, man. I mean, you're talking way back to the beginning of the show. If you if you think about the date of this show you're about to hear, uh, almost the end of the year in 2009. And I had been on air at this point for about 18 months. In fact, it would just be a few more episodes later where I would do the very first episode from Arlington, Texas, permanently no longer working for, you know, quote-unquote, the man. So we're like an episode or two away from that in this one, and I think this was done during the holiday shutdown period because I had pre-recorded it uh, because I kind of had to do that for interviews back then before I had my own office dedicated to doing a podcast. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and flash back to that interview with Christopher Nidges. Chris is a great dude, and uh, really learned a lot from him over the years. And with that, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Our special guest today is Christopher Nidges. Um, he is, like I said earlier, one of the main authors of Wilderness Way magazine. Uh, he's also the author of a new book, one of my new favorite books, honestly, The Self-Sufficient Home, Going Green and Saving Money. Chris, can tell? Uh, can you tell our folks... A bit about your background and uh, kind of how you got into this whole survivalist preparedness mindset in the first place. Sure, and uh, thanks for having me on today, Jack. I really uh, appreciate being a part of your program. Um, I grew up in uh, the Pasadena, Altadena area of Southern California, and so my my backyard was the Angeles National Forest. So just you know to go backpacking and for recreation and just to have an enjoyable weekend, we would we would walk walk up there and spend time up there and. You know, gradually I um, got interested in how the Native Americans lived in the past. You know, I, I 
in school what we're taught about Native Americans is the Plains Indians, teepees, beads, that kind of stuff. But uh, the, the diversity of uh, Native American tribes is so incredible, it isn't funny. And so I wanted to learn how to bring some of those principles into my day-to-day life. I liked backpacking, but, you know, I'm not backpacking most of the time. And um, my first interest, my first uh, science that I pursued was botany, and more specifically ethnobotany. I wanted to know how, uh, how people got their food and their medicine and all their tools from the plant life all around us. And, and that's what I spent um, much of I me mean, all my life doing, really. And, um, you know, the, 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 the new book, Self-Sufficient Home Jack, that's a book where I went out and I interviewed lots of other people who were uh, doing things. And, you, you know, you learn, you learn how they go about it economically and how different the paths are. But, um, uh, you know, just a little bit of background, how I got to that point, though. I mean, I was, um, I did have a six-month period some 20-some years ago where I was homeless. And actually, my family didn't even know about it. It was a very good learning experience because I was able to put things into practice. Uh, I was a squatter for a year and a half, where I lived in a place that was in probate in the city of Los Angeles, believe it or not, and it was a, quite a, it was several acres. It was, and, and that was an, these are an, an interesting and kind of life-enhancing learning experiences because I, I think my bottom line every week was I, I earned about five dollars writing, writing different columns, but I was able, you know, I didn't have many bills, and I gardened and I, and I tried a lot of these, uh, uh, self-sufficient lifestyle practices. I just put them into practice in, in my home. And uh, ten years ago, I wrote a book called Extreme Simplicity. Um, my, that's what my wife and I did in our home. And I've always told people, you know, these these are like basic permaculture ideas, how we produced our own food, we raised animals, uh, compost, uh, what we planted and why we planted it, how we had uh, uh, solar electricity, solar water heating, uh, the, the, the passive principles that we used in the home to keep it cool or keep it warm. And um, my rule of thumb that I told everybody is that I'm not a genius and I'm not rich, and if I could do it, you could do it, right? I mean, so that's what that book, Extreme Simplicity, was all about. So I already wrote a book about what we did. And um, there are books out there like uh, The Dummy's Guide to Solar Power, and which is a good book, uh, but the problem with a lot of these books is that you get the sense that you're reading an encyclopedia. Sure, sure. Okay? And uh, the, the, the self-sufficient home contains stories of about two dozen people who I went on and interviewed. And, uh, for example, I make an, there's, a, there's a permaculture section, there's rain collecting section, there's how to make your own biodiesel fuel. Uh, Dude McLean, who's also a field editor for Wilderness Way, he's, he, his, his story is the opening chapter, how he survived the great Silmar earthquake of 1971 because he was a former Marine and he was into camping and he had his home set up and he thought about such things. So there's a whole chapter about him. In, in the beginning of the book, <clears throat> but there are these uh, profiles that I do in the solar electricity section of the book, and uh, uh, I begin by pointing out how periodically some some friend would call me and they say, "Hey, I've got this deal on solar panels. Well, if we buy a bunch right away, uh, I can get them at a wholesale price, and then you can just go hook them up." And, and my thought always was, "Well, what does that mean? Do I just go hook them up to what?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? How do I hook I mean, them up? I, I, Again, I'm not a genius, but I'm not a, I'm not a complete idiot either. Uh, and so the reality is is that that would have been so naive of me to just buy them. In other words, the 
the, the panels are producing 12 volts electricity, and it's direct current, and your house is wired to alternating current 110, and, and you have to have an inverter. There's a lot of things you have to know. So I go through all of the different decisions that one would make. Do you want a standalone system, that is to say off the grid? Do you want battery backup? Uh, do you want to be integrated into the grid? <clears throat> there are many, many, many options. And um, the, the the different people that I interviewed, um, they all just they didn't pursue it really for economic reasons. But in every single case, Jack, they all said that it it uh, was it was economical to do so. That they came out ahead over time in terms of what they saved uh, on their bill. Plus, it wasn't. I didn't find a single person who did it just for money. These were people who were. Uh, just concerned about doing their part to not overuse resources. You know, it wasn't. I didn't run into global warming or global cooling or any of this kind of stuff, which is more political than anything. It almost seems. But you know, we have more and more people, and we have semi-finite resources. And sure. These are people who are basically conscientious, who want to just, in their own way, do their part, and and the paths were very different. You, you know, Chris. Different. One of the things that was really interesting to me and uh, really got the point home that you just made about these folks actually coming out financially ahead, right, in right. every instance that I read uh, through this book, every project, the people involved were part of the, the process itself. I, I didn't read exactly. one interview where, like, oh, I phoned up Joe from Joe Solar, and he came out and did everything for me. And I think that's a big part of why these folks were able to get an ROI a lot quicker, maybe, than we're conventionally told you can, because they went out. And I, I just had a, a person ask this on the show where they're like, you know, I've got this house I want to build in this, you know, off-grid place in British Columbia, and, mm -hmm. you know, they're telling me it's going to be $40,000. And I'm like, yeah, right. man, I can do a lot with $40,000. Well, you know, I, um, yeah, a lot of this is labor, of course. Exactly. Everybody that I interviewed, I, I didn't really make a point of pursuing it this way because – as you might know, when you do a research project, one thing leads to another, leads to another, somebody knows so-and-so. So, -and -so. so um, I didn't really know what the end result was going to be. It was very much a journalistic project where I went out and met these people and talked to them, asked them questions. And um, uh, I didn't, in fact, include anybody, not deliberately, but it just didn't work out that way. But nobody was included who simply hired a company that, uh, like one of these rebate companies that are connected with the power company. Now, that is... Uh, I just had somebody, I was working with a neighbor, and we brought, we brought one of these people's out, one of these companies out to look at their roof, and they gave a bid for 25 grand for a very small system, and then after rebates, it's 16 grand. Well, that's a lot of money, even after the rebate, and, and most of, money. of it's labor, and you're paying retail for a lot of your stuff. Now, if, if you have the money, and it's not a concern, and you amortize it or whatever, then I suppose that's okay. But uh, all of the folks that I interviewed, uh, they said, you know, this isn't highly complicated. And once you understand what you're dealing with, uh, you know, in, in some cases you could hire an electrician or work with the electrician because you're basically, for, for a photovoltaic system, and you're, you know, it's basic electricity. Mm -hmm. There are things that you have to understand. Uh, but I, I think a lot of the, there's people making an absolute killing. I, I, I'll tell you that. And if you don't understand what you have, because... Uh, you're you're going to lose money in the long run, I think, because you are your own power system. That, that's what you have to understand. This isn't like you pay uh, paying your electric bill and the power company has a wire to your house and there's nothing really to think about except over you know overloading fuses or something. Mm -hmm. You are your power system, 
you, there are certain things you have to maintain, whether it's batteries or keeping dust off of the inverter or keeping the panels clean or whatever. Not, it's not complicated, but but the more you educate yourself, the more money you're going to save and the happier you're going to be with the system. And and there is no one way. There is mm-hmm. no one way. You're going to see that in the book. Uh, one fellow, for example, uh, he lives up in the foothills. <clears throat> name is Ted Baumgart, who's in the book. He... Uh, he realized that uh, long ago that the refrigerator is one of the biggest uh, energy hogs in the household. Modern refrigerators are very inefficient appliances. The, the walls should be thick, but they're not. The, the you know cold the cold descends, and therefore ice boxes should always be on the bottom, not the top. I know some refrigerators have it on the bottom. So he he bought himself the, one of the most energy efficient refrigerators on the market. It ran on uh, 12 volts DC, and he has four panels on his roof that operate uh, some lights in the refrigerator. And it took his uh, it took his electric bill way down. And uh, he said he could actually put panels on the entire roof, but he'd have to cut all the trees down. So you see, there are always choices and options to make. Uh, for him, that was totally fine, just to reduce the um, uh, you know, just just to reduce the electrical bill with a little standalone system, meaning that this uh, refrigerator is not on the grid. It's just a little standalone system that runs kitchen lights in the refrigerator. So again, he educated himself. He read the electrical code. He did it all himself. He Very never took cool. a class on, on electrical uh, anything in his life. You know, one of the things that we've really encouraged people to do that listen to the Survival Podcast is to start out small because if you can build something small. You can build it big. And if you look at like any science type organization, they always do what they call scale modeling. They build something right. small and they build it big. So one of the big things I've been on with people is, you know, go out and get yourself a, a 20 watt panel and a couple batteries and an inverter and build a solar backup system. A little, little bitty one that can run maybe a laptop and a couple lights and, uh, you know, some things like that. It, I kind totally of a concur. Solar totally generator, concur. whatever you call it. And, and, but the reason I tell them to do that is it gets you started, and then you realize when you do it, you go, well, this isn't that really that hard. And you might, like you said, need to bring an electrician in to do certain things. And when you talk about high voltage, and here's what I've always, this is one of my big things. If I don't know about something and it can kill me, I don't touch it. Right, but I'll do everything right up to that point. Right, and then I'll do everything on the other side of that point, and I bring a professional in to make that 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 you know that final piece of the connection. And I think yeah, if people is, do that, they'll have a lot less cost associated with these projects. That, that in fact, was the first thing that my wife and I did was we had a little uh, standalone system that uh, with an inverter and a battery batteries that that powered her office, ran the computer, ran some lights, ran a fan. Very cool. And uh, and we had a, a friend who come in, came in and uh, you know I basically dogged him all day. Just you know there are little details if you if you you know I've helped electricians but I'm not an electrician. I'm not licensed or really trained particularly. But you ask a lot of questions and you start to figure things out. Sure. You know? Don't be afraid. If, if, if uh, fear is probably one of the reasons why a lot of these folks make out like bandits. Uh, and, and, and I don't, I'm not afraid to ask questions. I'm not afraid to act, uh, seem like an idiot, right? I, I, who am I trying to impress? Sure. So I, sure. if I don't know, I'm going to tell them and, uh, and try to learn something in the process. And, and, and I think that's the whole point is to educate ourselves, start small, like you say. Another thing that I bring up in the book, uh, is that a lot of people, in terms of, uh, living more self-reliantly in, in the home, 
you know, I mean, I have a book on wilderness survival too, which is kind of. Uh, can, can we back up there a second? Because I want to sure, ask sure. you a question about that. When, yeah. when I first came came to uh, to know you in the in the, the survival industry as a whole, mm-hmm. it was through Wilderness Way magazine. It was it was, right. and I, I, the first one of you guys I actually met personally was Alan Alan Halkin. Mm-hmm. Alan but, Halkin, huh? Yeah, but before I even met him. Uh, I was a reader of Wilderness Way, and I knew you as this guy that knew everything about the wilderness and wild plants. And then I met you out at Dirt Time, and I thought, this guy's great. And you're walking around, and I, I walked and I looked at this place that we were out in the middle of this desert valley up in the high desert mountain region, basically, and went, well, there's not a lot here. And then you took us on a walk, and you're like, you can eat that, you can eat that. If you eat that, it'll kill you. Don't mess with that. That's You can make fire with that. That's medicine. And it was like there was all this food just sitting around there and all these usable things around there. And that's what I knew you as is that guy. What well, made you kind of no. break that mold and go into something that's so much more, I would say, usable to the average person in in their own home and how to well, make their life more sufficient at, at home? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I never really broke a mold as such, Jack. I think I just keep it kept expanding into other things. When I first um, uh, got interested in all this, I mean, my, I used to drive my parents mad because I'd bring plants home and mushrooms home and I'd be studying them and uh, I, I had very few uh, teachers that, you know, there didn't seem to be as many teachers available back then. I'm talking some 35 years ago now. And uh, so I, it took me long and hard to learn every single plan and to try them. And I never, I started teaching in 1974, and all my classes were just plant ID and plant cooking, you know, wild plants, how to process them. So, okay, so from there, I'm, you're learning about the plants and you're realizing, oh, they say this is good for bows and this is good for arrows and this is good for traps and this is good for cordage. So, you know, you knew that the plant technology of the Native Americans ex- ex- extended to their entire life. So obviously I started getting into those things. I mean, I think the next thing that I tried to master was all the ways to make fire primitively. And um, I would say after about 10 years of teaching the plant classes, I got into teaching wilderness survival classes and some of this stuff, frankly, is not that hard. How to make a shelter, uh, you know, how to uh, purify water, uh, navigation, orienteering. And uh, I, I think, to me, it was always a natural transition to think in terms of urban survival and wilderness survival. Like, you know, if you, if you survived uh, uh, Katrina or if you survived that great uh, Christmas uh, uh, tsunami back in, Indo- in Indonesia a few years back, you might be in an urban area, but everything you have to do to stay alive is what we might categorize as wilderness survival. So I think the more I did things, the more I did classes, and the more I just experimented on my own with really the basis of Native American technologies, uh, I, I, I just naturally applied it to my life. And, and I have to say that I don't even see any dichotomy. You know, uh, you know I what? Mean, I, I, was th- I was thinking about that when I was reading your book. And yeah, I, was yeah. I don't even because see I was... dichotomy at all. It's a way of it's a mindset that I try to apply to everything. Just like when you were talking at dirt time, Jack, you were talking about permaculture. Mm-hmm. Permaculture is a coined word, but it's a, it's sort of a mindset, a way of looking at the world that you can apply to everything. Okay, right? I mean, it, it has to do with economics. It has to do with your garden, your home, with everything you do, your relationship to your environment, and, and so I think... In short, can I make it sustainable versus one time and off and done, right? Exactly, exactly. How, and so, you know, survival, I mean, in high school, we used to talk about survival. My friends and I, my teachers and I, uh, maybe on camping trips, maybe just, you know, in the backyard after school, 
What does that mean? What are the trends in the world? So we were always, you know, we knew that wilderness survival, those concepts meant that I can stay, I personally can stay alive tonight and today. Uh, you know, and, but I, I think you'd have to be very, uh, uh, sort of very narrow focused to not start thinking about other people. Uh, so we Correct. used to have, a, we used to make evacuation plans for Los Angeles. And one of the things that, fortunately, we never had to do it, but we knew what the what the ways to get out of here would be. We knew that the army would shut down the freeway, major freeways. You know, if there was some kind of a, who knows what, uh, major 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 earthquake, uh, nuclear scare, whatever. That the plan is not to get people out get people out of the LA Valley. So we had maps, and we used to scout out the different trails to get up into the high desert. But the thing is, those the the men, let's say, who were more fit. Would, could do that, but there were children and there were women and elderly uh, among our friends and acquaintances. You know, I mean, is survival like in some of the movies, leaving them behind? I mean, it wasn't to us. Man, I'm so up. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I've been I've been telling people over and over because of the, the I guess the type of people that the 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 whole the concept of survivalism uh, attracts since the very beginning of this show mm-hmm. that. You can you can be you know I don't you might be the former marine or the active marine or the like guy like me that was in the airborne at one point in your life or whatever and you might think well if if it all blows up I can take care of myself but if you're married and you have kids what about your wife what about your son what about your daughter what about your niece your nephew your your dad your grandfather what about all these other people that can't just exactly. pick up a rock and and head out you got to take care of them too well so so in other words. So we see totally eye to eye on this. So survival, Absolutely. survival is um, how how do I train my family to think, you know, so that we don't end up in a survival. I mean, my, my whole thing in, in survival is that I don't want to be in a bad survival situation. Somebody was interviewing me a month or so ago, and they asked me what was the worst survival situation you situation you were ever in, and I said, you know, something I've never really been in never a really bad survival crash. situation because. That's why I've studied this. I don't want to be stuck out in the cold with the broken bones or lost or whatever. I mean, I, I, some people think I'm paranoid when I go out in the woods with them or before I go on a trip because I'm checking everything multiple times because I don't want to be in that situation. So I, I don't consider it any badge of honor to have, um, you know, to say, well, I fell off a cliff and I had to spend three nights out in the cold freezing my butt off. I mean, you know, I, I try to avoid that kind of stuff. I'm not interested in, yeah. in pain and uh, unnecessary hardship. And you know what? It's, fu- it's, it's funny how we all end up. Uh, yeah. It's funny how we all end up in the same place eventually. Um, yeah. I, what I've always said is, if you're in a true survival situation, you've messed something up. You, you've, you've screwed something up. One of the big questions I get all the time from listeners: What's the perfect survival knife if I have to rely just on a knife? And I'm like. Well, if you have to rely just on a knife, then you plan to bring the knife with you. So why did you just bring the knife? Why didn't you plan a little better? Why didn't you think a little bit better? It's not that I can't tell you, okay, this is a good knife and this is a crappy knife. And I, I can answer the spirit of the question. But, but to me, the deeper meaning is, why would you put yourself in a position when you have the, we're the only creatures on the planet that can really look ahead and say, these are the things that could happen, and do something about it. I mean, there's a little bit of that from the animal world, but not to the level that a human can do it. So why would you ignore this innate ability that we have, this gift that we have, to prepare for these situations? Of course, of course. You know, and not only that, now, uh, 
in terms of just one's mindset, I, you know, I, you, it obviously leads into how do you support the type of society that you want to live in? How, how do you support, let's say, through your pocketbook? Because uh, look, look at all the junk and the wasted time that our society produces uh, for things that are of no real value. We can support positive things, uplifting things with how we spend our money. Uh, and we make choices that way all the time. I mean, one of the big ones that's gonna, that, that is really, really serious is that we've saved money in this country by outsourcing things, meaning let the, let the cheap people who will work for two bucks an hour in a third world country make all of our stuff. So we have no technological base left in this country. You have no manufacturing a, base either. That is a very bad thing. That we is can't not build a good things. thing. Yeah, yeah, that is not a good thing at all. You can't, you can't live on paper profits forever. So uh, political awareness is very important. I've worked, you know, with uh, uh, many organizations over the years, and there's a nonprofit that I've worked with, and we, we've had uh, uh, seminars once a month or so. And for a while, I used to give the, um, the economic presentation. I know you may not be aware of that, but I would talk about things like what is the Federal Reserve, what is the International Monetary Fund, just so we have a political awareness, <clears throat> because you can, you know, you can have all of the great ideas that you want, uh, but you need to be aware of the world, the real world that we're living in. You know, the, not the fantasy world that you want, but what is the real world that we're living in, uh, and um, and what, how how can you best utilize money in your life as a tool of survival? The way you spend your money, and, and of course the way you spend your time, will determine, and or certainly can determine whether you're going to be a victim or you will uh, survive in health uh, in a survival situation that stresses everything. And, and you know, there's many, many challenges. Uh, I'm, not, uh, <clears throat> I'm not so um, cocky to think that I will always survive anything that might happen. I mean, you know, I, you, the, the older you get, the more you realize there's uh, a lot of left curves that uh, come your way in life. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the thing to do is have an open mind and not respond with fear. Uh, the, the Rambo approach to survival situations, if I can do it all myself, is the most idiotic one that's been invented. <laughs> you know, you, the, the, I mean, I, I want to tell you, if you don't mind, Jack, there's, a, there's during Y2K, remember Y2K? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I've, heard that, I've heard that there's some panic building for 2012, but... yeah. But, which is another big nothing. Mayans, you, you know, by the way, uh, the Mayans predicted nothing. There's no Maya prediction. That's all. That's all fabrication. Well, all their calendar, happening. their calendar ends, right? That's right. There's their no calendar ends. There's no prediction. There's a just our, like calendar our calendar ends, turns over. <laughs> our calendar ends on December 31st every year. Their calendar exactly. uses a different astrological occurrence to end. That, that's the whole thing. What I've been telling people, Chris, I think you'll get a kick out of this, is that if you want a lot of really good deal, deals on things like, you know, prepper items and stuff like that, check out Craigslist around January of 2013, and eBay. Oh right, right. Gonna, just like after, just, just like man, after Y2K, right? I bought a great big beautiful 8500 kilowatt generator, uh, and I've got it for a steal. And you know when I bought it, right? January fifteenth, two thousand. Yeah. Because yeah. people were giving stuff away because they weren't they weren't thinking like we talk about thinking here. They weren't thinking about let's be prepared for whatever. They were preparing for an acute event rather right. than the things that could happen at any given point in time. And when the right. acute event didn't occur, 
then they felt stupid for spending all this money. They wanted some of it back, so they dumped everything. And, and the fact is, they should have just kept it because now they were prepared for earthquakes or whatever. I was interviewed a lot in the uh, news, local newspapers, in you know, LA Times and others. And uh, after um, there wasn't the end of the world at uh, you know the, the end of '99, uh, there, I got a phone call from some agency, and they said, "Oh, we uh, do you want to donate all your food?" And I said, "What are you talking about?" They said, well, you, you had, they said that you store food. Do you want to donate? I said, why would I want to donate? I don't even know who you are, for one thing. Yeah. And they said, well, because, uh, you know, there was no problem with Y2K. And I said, so? You know, so what? That's why in I, other was, words, that's uh, not what we, I was storing we, food for. We, we've been storing food, and uh, you know, for um, forever. So, you know, you, you, you store what you eat, and you eat what you store, and... It, maybe you're out of work for a while, or maybe uh, uh, you know you just can't get to the store because of a blizzard. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a it's the proper thing to do. Correct. Uh, my, my oldest brother, he um, this was back during the Reagan administration. There's a little uh, chapter about this in my Extreme Simplicity book, where uh, he uh, he was in the commodities business and he started her- hearing some of the saber rattling between I think it was Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, and, and there were people that thought we would have we would go to war with the Soviet Union or the Russia or whatever it was at the time. Uh, and if, if you're if you're aware of this, there actually was uh, there was a, a a real close call during the Reagan administration where the, the Russians thought that uh, it was a computer glitch. They thought that there were missiles coming in from the United States, and a, and a guy who knew that it was a mistake lost his job because he didn't he just didn't do what he was supposed to do you know like push the button but in any event during that period my brother spent 10 grand or so and bought mountain house food ah. and uh he you know he he was kind of an idiot in a sense uh, excuse me my brother but you know he was kind of, he, he just went ahead and bought boxes of stuff without even knowing what he was buying because he could afford it and uh his whole garage was full of boxes and then a Man. few months later he, he realized he realized oh i need to have water for this stuff too so he bought, uh, you know, sparklets, big uh, water, five-gallon waters, sure. water containers. So he was all ready. And, um, you know, the, we didn't go to war, you know, and, and so it was not a problem. And then what happened a few years later is that uh, uh, there was an earthquake where he lived. His house was worth way less than he was paying. He got divorced. A child died. He had a lot of you know, problems and disasters in the family. And his income was uh, dramatically reduced. That food was his survival Man. Uh, kit. You know that his family lived off of that food for about two years. Christopher, you are you are so preaching to the choir here with the TSP audience. <laughs> we we talk about something called disaster probability, and what we what we've been talking about for I guess a year and a half now is that mm-hmm. the lower the number of people affected by a disaster, the more likely it is to happen to you. So if it's a personal level disaster, if it's it's you lost your job, your wife died, you got a divorce, you got cleaned, whatever it is, if it just happens to you and your neighbor doesn't even care, that's more likely to happen to the average American than anybody else. And as you expand the disaster area, the less likely you are as an individual to experience it. So like a low probability event's an asteroid impact. That's a very interesting. You've never point. had one, right? But what I said, if you prepare for the the big Hollywood disaster and you're prepared for it. You know, there's 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 a big saying in America that men have said for years. I got to keep a roof over our head, and I got to keep food on the table. And those are intrinsic mm-hmm. to the human soul. If you're out in the wilderness, right? 
I got to get same shelter thing. and I got to feed yeah. myself, right? So as That's the man cool. in the same house, thing. I got to put a roof over my family's head and I got to put food on the table for me. Well, if I have food stored and I live a sensible lifestyle where I can at least keep shelter around us, I'll keep everything together and we'll get through everything no matter what it is. So it's just wild to hear you come in and talk about these things from a totally different angle and be so in sync. Um, one of the things I want, I want to get back to your book because the self-sufficient home, going green and saving money. Awesome book. Love it. Uh, one of my new favorite books, like I said, one of the things that I really got out of this book, it was different than a lot of books I've read like it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this yourself. You talk to a bunch of different people. You talk right. to people that are really doing it, and it's not this, okay, here's how to install a solar system. It's like, here's how these people installed one. Here's how these people installed one. Here's how these people did it. Here's right. how this many, guy many went. Options. I'm not going to do solar panels. I'm going to do a solar hot water system. Here's how this guy said, can't do that. I'm going to do water storage. And you put all these things together. Why would you take that approach? Well, um, uh, I, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel and talk about what was out there. Like I said, the book, uh, uh, The Dummy's Guide to Solar Power, covers a lot of the same uh, principles, you might say, but it's like reading an encyclopedia when you read that. Here are real-life people, and I ask them, what problems did you encounter? How much did you co- did it cost you? Why did you decide on this thing? And so, in other words, um, uh, my publisher, by the way, wanted me to, to, to have it more uh, uh, not so much personality profiles of these individuals and I and I argued that I think this is a much better approach. I don't want it to be just I'm not I don't want to write a, a bland encyclopedia. I want to see I want the reader to see the actual people, who they are, the ordinary folks like you and me. They're not rich. They went about it step by step. They had uh you know simple uh uh you know you know reasons for uh, pursuing whatever it was, whether it was uh, their own fuel or solar power or rain collecting or alternate toilets, whatever it was. And uh, I found that it was a far more interesting book. Uh, In other words, many of the books that I personally have read uh, will talk about, because even my book, for example, if you read my Extreme Simplicity book, that is just what we did. But here is a case where uh, you you realize that one solution doesn't fit everybody and one budget doesn't fit everybody. So, uh, you know, each one of them pursued something that was appropriate for their situation. They did it step by step, uh, and it was always economical. I, I, I think you had a much richer experience. Now, I mentioned Ed Begley periodically throughout the book. I've been to Ed's place, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ed is fortunate that he was able to just pay uh, something like $85,000 to have a, his 100 solar panels on his roof. And it and it, uh, it runs his fully modern house. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But he, he knows that not everybody can do that. And he, even he says, just start simple. Sure. You don't have to you don't have to go out and uh, and uh, take out a loan or whatever. Start simple. Change your light bulbs um, so you're using less power. Put in the compact fluorescence. One of the things that um, the Forbes family, they're one of the families I interviewed. They they, they are just you know, totally incredible what they do. And they have tours of their house actually with the a little solar tour here in uh, in uh, Southern California, but they suggest um, you know don't even worry about a lot of these electrical things. Insulate your house. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, because that's saving you the gas or the the uh, fuel or the electricity to heat your uh, home in the winter or cool it in the summer. Just start insulating the roof, then insulate the walls, then insulate the floor. Um, one of the things that I mentioned, you see, there's so many simple, simple things that you can do within whatever your budget is. 
uh, when my wife and I moved into our place in 1986, Jack, the roof leaked. Are you still there? I'm here. I'm here. Okay, good. <laughs> it sounded like you went blank. No. When we moved into our house in 1986, the roof leaked. Now, our budget was such that we couldn't afford to just fix the roof. Sure. And we ended up buying this white sealant that uh, uh, claimed to, to, uh, to, to, to seal small leaks. Now, it turned out that it worked really well, and it cost me like 100 bucks to seal the whole roof with this liquid rubber. And, but, it, but I didn't like the color. It's this white, bright roof, and it turned out that uh, because of the white on the roof, the house was incredibly cooler, 15, to, uh, to 15 degrees cooler. It reflected the sunlight, right? In the summer, yeah. yeah. Now I see the Obama administration, there's some guy in the Obama administration is encouraging people to do that, and I noticed he got heavily ridiculed, uh, and, and you don't hear about it anymore, but that actually is a viable, inexpensive, simple, no-brainer way to reduce your, um, your your cooling costs in the summer. I mean, I, I've done it at uh, two places now, and I'm astounded. No, three places, and, I'm, and, and it's amazing, you know, how it actually keeps the place cool. You know what? You and, might wonder if maybe the old timers that did something as simple as tin roof had a uh, point, because even though it's not white, it's highly reflective, and you get the same effect off of that. You're right, and, and actually, I learned that the, uh, the this white stuff was originally invented for people who lived in trailers. Oh. The tin roofs actually do get pretty hot, but yep. if, they're, if they're shiny and reflective, that's better, and they paint them white, and it and reduces they... the heat by about 10, 10 to 20 degrees. Beautiful, beautiful. Hey, yeah. let's, let, let's shift gears again here a little bit. Okay. I, I want to give people a, a good view of, uh, of, of kind of the, the, this new book of yours, again, The Self-Sufficient Home. Um, you have a lot in it, it, it right, right from the beginning with Dude. Uh, to, I can't remember the guy's name. It was the guy that played Lurch that lives out on Catalina Island. What's oh, that's Carl Struken. He was Carl a Struken. wonderful addition to the book. Yeah, Carl Struken, right, yeah. Right, about, about growing your own food and permaculture. You know that's a big topic with me. It's, it's something I'm extremely passionate about. Can you right. tell my audience how important you think it is for people to grow at least some of their own food? I don't care if it's a guy like me and I've got, you know, I've got a third of an acre in suburbia and I grow a lot. I grow probably 80% of the, our, the vegetarian portion of our diet in the summer, or if the guy with an apartment growing a little bit in some containers on his, on his, on his uh, porch, how important is it for people to at least take a little bit of control over that part of their lives? Well, uh, let me say that obviously you have to choose to do this first. This is, this is all about personal choice, and I found that when I went up into the mountains and I was scrounging around and looking for the wild plants and I'd learned how to find them and I'd be all excited I would come home and, and, and realize, hey, we're cultivating, and this when I was growing up at my, uh, my parents' house, we're cultivating, and my father's buying fertilizer for useless plants. Correct. Everything, produ- everything produces oxygen. But uh, it, it, it is when I started to garden then, when I still lived at home, we, I could take a small little area, and we had fresh grapes, fresh tomatoes. We had fresh fruit, fresh strawberries. And, and it, it's like not only is it totally viable and practical, uh, just think if you couldn't get to the store, you'd have food right there. I mean, it's such a, it's such a no-brainer survival tactic. You could have ornamental plants in your yard. Every, I, I, I think every single bush and tree that you have should be producing something, whether it's fragrance or food or medicine. It is not difficult to do at all. Now, um, one of the things that I mentioned in the Self-Sufficient Homebook 
is that uh, I try to, because I've taught gardening classes too, and people always want to know, how do you keep the bugs off of this? And they, they ask the inappropriate questions. It, it, what you want to do is you find out what grows well in your area, okay, and so that's, that you should select from that list. Then you ask yourself, what do I like eating? And those things that you like to eat that are on that list is what you should grow. <laughs> I'm also very pragmatic in the sense that the things that I can't keep alive and they keep dying, I just don't bother with. So I'm, I'm a very lazy gardener, Jack. Uh, I, I, I grow uh, New Zealand spinach because it's a ground cover that takes care of itself. Sure. I grow, I grow uh, Jerusalem artichokes because I don't have to work. I grow citrus trees. You know, I grow arti- uh, asparagus because asparagus, again, it's a perennial. Sure. You it once and you have it forever. So anything that I can grow that recedes itself or takes care of itself with minimal work, that's what I grow. Uh, I'm then, with you uh, there. Yeah, because it's not like it's the only thing I do. I have lots of interests and lots of things that take up my time. And then in terms of uh, how to have the best possible garden, uh, you know, you mulch heavily and you build the soil through through various methods, through composting, through, through adding mulches. And... Um, the, the quality of the soil and improving the quality of the soil is the single most important thing you can do to have a good uh, garden that will produce food for yourself and for your family. Uh, if, if the soil is good, the plants are more uh, insect resistant. Okay, so you don't, you, that's why when I tell people to improve the fertilize if they have a bug problem, they say, well, I'm talking about how do I get rid of the aphids? Well, I'm, I'm talking long term. I'm not talking necessarily tomorrow. You know, you can go take a hose and spray the bugs off. Correct, but and build a, to, build a giant intensive root system which comes from good soil and a bug eats a leaf and the plant doesn't care and then bring in additional plants and and do as much as you can to expand on the diversity of what you're growing exactly bring in the predators and you can tell me that you know so and so pest has gotten immune to whatever pesticide but he'll never get immune to a lacewing because a lacewing eats them and you don't get (laughs) immune to being eaten if you get eaten you're dead and if right, the right. thing I tell people I have problems with insects, you don't have an insect problem, you have an insect efficiency. If you bring in more insects, this is true. This right? is true. Then the insects that you bring in through planting, and don't worry about every, you know, I'm I'm big with you on any kind of like tree, vine, bush needs to produce mm-hmm. something beneficial. But I'll take and I'll plant things like marigolds and mm-hmm. uh, different uh, flowers in my vegetable gardens. And people are like, well, mm-hmm. that doesn't like feed you. Yeah, but it brings in all of these these predator predatory insects. Right, right. Right, and then they do my job for me, and then I get the worms working with all the mulch you're talking about. They till the soil, right? Then we bring in a a couple chickens and a couple ducks. Bill Mollison, you know, the father of permaculture, said there's no such thing as a slug problem. There's a duck deficiency. If you have ducks, there won't be a single slug, right? And and there's so much of it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's so much of that. Like, like the other thing I learned from, from all of Bill's uh, DVDs and things like that was like the fruit fly problem. Like, I brought, I have peach trees and apple trees in my backyard, and I had problems with the fruit flies. Well, if you bring chickens in, they eat the they fruit fly maggots before they hatch out of the the stuff that fell to the ground. They break the cycle, and it's a done deal. And the only thing I have to worry about with my peaches anymore are the squirrels. Yeah, that's a good point. I do have, I don't have an insect problem. I haven't for a long time, but I do have squirrels that come in. I do have gophers. I, I even have deer that come into my yard and eat stuff. So I do have that as an issue. But you know, the problem that I think, permaculture, of course, Mollison didn't um, invent permaculture. He just coined the word. And it's, right. it's the ancient way of taking care of the land so it takes care of us. It's learning nature's principles 
so that we're not uh, we're not you know I, I always wondered when I visited my uncle's farm in Ohio why he had to wear this special suit when he fumigated his apple right. orchard and he said well because there's poison out there and I, and I thought well my God he's a farmer eating all the food oh my God and so that always bothered me uh, but but we have this notion in our yards of um, neatness right yeah we have, you know, yeah and and I think yeah. that, that that's one of the first things that needs to go it's a it's a it's a prideful thing that serves no purpose now in some neighborhoods uh, granted uh, I know people that have been run out of the neighborhood because they didn't keep their lawn green and mowed properly uh, I, I don't I don't consider that it has any redeeming value I don't believe in lawns uh, it's a to me the lawn is just an extra space in fact I never have maintained a lawn aside from when I grew up with my parents I put wood chips there I put in trees you know I plant things uh, it, neatness is kind of our uh, our enemy because that makes us do things that are of no redeeming value. Yeah, tidiness has no place in the permaculturist garden because that's not how nature works. Nature's actually extremely beautiful in its patterns. If you look at like the seven layer system of permaculture, your canopy layer, your subtree, your, your vines, your your bushes, your shrubs, uh, your your ground cover, it's it's a very beautiful pattern. But you have to know what to look for to see the pattern. It looks very, uh, it looks very untidy. It looks very Correct. much a mess, but yet it's beautiful in its own way. And, right. and if you emulate that, like you were talking about, Bill Mollison didn't create permaculture. Of course not. In right, fact, right. one of his DVDs I watched, he was taking us to like, okay, here's a place that I started three years ago. Here's a place one of my students started 15 years ago. Here's a place another uh, that I did 30 years ago. This is what it looks like now. And he was talking about how sustainable this stuff is. And then he went to Morocco. And he took mm -hmm. the cameras into a food forest that was 5,000 years old and still producing. Really? It was absolutely the most. It was date palms and things like that. And basically, this the, the original uh, uh, society that settled there was 5,000 years ago. And c people kept doing things, just like the natives did things that we didn't understand in North America, uh, to, to keep it going. But it was very minimal compared to what we do with agriculture. 5,000-year-old food forest. You can look that video up on YouTube. And, and to think that somebody touched that soil 5,000 years ago and the efforts they put in then are still producing food that can be eaten today. That says it's a new paradigm to uh, to self-sufficiency to me. Well, yeah, that tells us we should be trying to learn something from those folks. Because they had to right? do it. That was the thing. They yeah. had to do it. If they didn't do it, they didn't eat. You know, that's yeah, the thing. If you want to learn how to uh, be self-sufficient, look at the people that never had Kroger uh, or Winn-Dixie or Albertsons or 7-Eleven or uh, TXU Electric or, you know, whatever electric company you have out there in California. Those people will show you how to do it because right. that's what they did. Yeah, I mean, we, we've gotten so far from that. That's the sad part. We've, we've been fed a bill of goods that, you know, you have to do things a certain way. Uh, look a certain way. Your yard needs to look a certain way, and a lot of these things have become our enemies. They're they're um, they're not our, our our they're not our freedom. If you if you see what I'm saying, we need to uh, we need to sort of look for the past, look to the past for the solutions for our future. And certainly, all the principles of permaculture is, is one of those big solutions. What are your you know, thoughts on like how livestock fit into that? I do, do you even mess around with that? I mean, based on where you live. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not really a vegetarian. I I don't eat a lot of meat, but I've um you know I I raised chickens are easy to to mm -hmm. raise. I raised them mostly for eggs. I raised rabbits for a while for meat, but mostly for the, uh, the droppings for compost. 
Um, I know people that have raised them and used them, the rabbits like chicken. But if you're in an urban area, there are quite a few animals that you can have that won't bring in the animal inspectors. I mean, in a regular urban area, they do have a lot of um, people don't like the roosters. I, I had 40 chickens at one time, and I had to get rid of the roosters because it woke <laughs> yeah. up the neighbors. So I just had the hens. It was, I was sad to get rid of them. But I think it's a real important uh, part of the whole equation is having animals. You know, you 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 not only uh, is it food or fertilizer, it's uh, it's a barter item and it um, it grows, right? I keep bees also, so you, I'm constantly getting new beehives here and there. Sometimes it's cool. wild. You have honey, you have wax, you have something that's uh, that's uh, you know taking care of your fruit trees. And you have a food that never spoils. And honey, I mean, you, you really have to do something bad to make honey go wrong. I mean, you have to go out of your way to do it. And you have to work you just mentioned something that's, yeah. that's cool and, and, and something I, I hadn't planned to talk to you about. But bees are just, if if we lost all the bees tomorrow, and I don't just mean the honey bees, I mean the bumblebees, the uh, orchard mason bees, all of those those pollinators, we're, we're in real trouble. And the yeah. bees have had yeah. some problems lately, and people bringing them in and taking care of them, uh, that's a that's a big part of fixing that problem. We've had what they call a colony collapse disorder, and uh, yeah. it's something I'm looking to yeah. get into. I'm not going to mess with. We we have enough stuff to move. I'm going to make a big move here in about March or April uh, uh-huh. up to our our secondary location in Arkansas. And I, I my wife said no chickens, no bees. We have enough to move already. And I'm like, okay, you're right. But bees well, are something move, I'm really into. Bees are very easy. I've always had chickens. Uh, I actually have a pig, I've had a, but he's just a pet, but pigs are very easy to raise. Uh, I have a pet, 17-year-old pig named Otis, and um, we, I've had goats. Goats, uh, the problem with goats, again, if you live in an urban area, is uh, they, they start making noise, at least yeah. the ones that I did always had, at the crack of dawn, and if they're not fed, and it just starts making so much noise, you, you know, you have to put them in a barn or something. So noise, anything that disturbs neighbors you want to be aware of in an urban area uh, if you want your, you know if you want to get along with your neighbors so there are quite a few silent animals uh, rabbits are good bees are certainly good chickens are you know the hens are good um, and there may be others that that are pretty easy to keep and i think you know a self sufficient lifestyle it necessarily includes that and i and i think people should uh, pursue that wherever they can you know there's still 4h clubs mm-hmm. and school groups where they teach you how to do this when I think back on, uh, you know, when I when I didn't know any of this, uh, it, you know, it seems it can seem very daunting. But I just pursued it one at a time. I remember when I, we never had chickens. My mother said, "Well, we had them on the farm. They weren't that hard." So we got them and put them in our little backyard in Pasadena when I was still with my parents. And uh, you know, y- that's how you learn. You get a few. You you raise them. You feed them. You see what they do. Uh, we, we we always had different kind of animal pets too. We always had tortoises, but those were just pets. But but you learn by doing, and and all of these things that we're talking about in the self-sufficient book, in my extreme simplicity book, you you learn by doing it. Like uh, uh, one of my a lot of these things are are things that I I went through phases where I I was interested in and just spent a lot of time and money trying to do it. Like solar water heating, I built quite a few uh, so-called bread box solar water heaters. You know, getting getting back to that subject, I mean, a lot of it is simply. Um, being willing to take the time and to do it and to follow maybe instructions if you have some plans. One of the things that um, I think I've trained myself out of is to to want to rush ahead. Everything is going to usually just take your time, do the thing step by step, do it right, 
it's always going to take longer than you think, but if you do it right, it's going to last a lot longer, and you'll enjoy it, and it'll serve you, right? Just relax, calm down, you know, don't be in a big hurry. I, I know a lot of a lot of guys seem to be that way, mm-hmm. you know, and, but you, you can't always have it yesterday. You, you know, part of it is learning uh, learning the steps of whatever it is that you're doing, and, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I encourage that. I think that's a real important thing. You know, I, I talk a lot about alternative investment concepts, right? you know, it, which sounds like it's totally different from permaculture and livestock and, uh-huh. and water heaters. But to me, that's all part of it. And what I mean by alternative right. investment is you, you take something, and you, we're going to have you back on, Christopher, if you'll come back on, because you've, talk, you've hit so to. many buttons. I, I can bring you back on. You and I can just sit here and talk for an hour about the Federal Reserve. I guarantee you, and we'll have a great show out of it. But, <laughs> yeah, and, sure. but you talk about something like that, and we understand the concept of a fiat currency. And trust me, most of the people listening to the show know exactly what I mean there, uh-huh. and, and converting it to something with lasting value, right? Uh-huh. So when you take and you look at things like building a solar hot water system, you have to start looking at that more from an investor standpoint than from I want it tomorrow standpoint. So what I mean by that is if I put $5 into an interest-bearing account, I don't look at it tomorrow and go, well, how much is it is it worth now? I understand that there's a process that has to go through for that to build, to, for the $5 to become $10. Well, if I want to build a solar hot water system that's going to produce all the hot water my home needs or a portion of the hot water uh, my home needs, which is a, it's a huge piece of the energy bill, right? If I want to produce that, then I have to take, like you're saying, take your time and build that and see that as a long-term asset. And even if I'm put, whether it's equity from a sweat standpoint or equity from a monetary standpoint, I'm investing in something that's going to then produce for me over and over again so that solar hot water system or that permaculture-style garden, either one of those is now an investment that pays me back over and over again, and that's what leads us to the self-sufficient thing that you're talking about. Exactly. Part of the self-sufficiency is in your mind because when you start doing these things, you realize, well, I don't even have to buy all the stuff. A lot, a lot of the gardening things I can recycle. Uh, I, a lot, I, my first solar water heater uh, uh, solar, you know, was all scratch. It was all junk stuff for the most part. I didn't spend much money at all. And uh, you realize there are a lot of resources around. And so that diminishes one's sense of fear, you know, fear and, and being beholden to the dollar. I have to work to make money to, to, for everything that I need. And then you realize, oh, I, I don't really need this. I don't need that. This I can get from scratch. This I can borrow. Um, you might find this interesting, but uh, I have a book that has never been published, but it's all about money. Uh, and and uh, I start with, the, with what I call the four illusions of money. And then I have another book on uh, just 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 just. We're, we're going statement. long, but we're going to go long now. You got to give me in the, the the condensed version. What are the four illusions of money? Oh boy! <laughs> you got to do the condensed version. Trust me, these these are educated people you're talking to. They'll get it. Right. Well, um, a lot of money will allow me to be free to do what I want to do. Okay. Okay. I need money for my family. Money is necessary for my security in old age. Okay. And people with people with a lot of money command more respect from others. Now, these there's probably a lot of so-called illusions of money, but uh, I I, um, I gave several lectures with that title. Now that's not my original title. There was uh, there was an article with that title uh, from the uh, Coevolution Quarterly, which arose from the whole last whole Earth catalog, if I'm not mistaken. But I liked it so much that I've adapted it and used it many many times. And the reason they're illusions, 
See, it's, money is uh, uh, money is so important in our life that I remember, uh, I think his name was Tony Brown, who was a talk show host, used to always say, uh, I put it right up there with oxygen. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it affects so many parts of our life. But if we're spending eight hours a day at a job that we don't like and, and we're doing things and wasting the money, uh, you know, we, we should really examine what it is that our life is all about, not just what we're doing for money. What is my life about? What are we here for? Man. You know, I don't even mean on a religious sense, but deeply philosophically, deeply spiritually, what is it that this is all about? And I think because I used to ask myself that so often that I never fit into any of the, I mean, I always hated regular jobs. That's why I've been self-employed most of my life. But a lot of money a lot of people think that uh, a lot. If I only had a lot of money, I could do what I wanted to do. But they don't know what they want to do. They have no they idea. They find goals for themselves. Look Correct. at all the people that you know that have a clearly defined goal, and they just go ahead and do it. Well, if you ask they most just, people, if I give you, if I just right now said you are the benefactor of the Jack Spirico Endowment Society, here's a check for ten million dollars. Yeah, now, with $10 million, dollars, you never have to, if you don't want to, you never have to work again for the rest of your life. What would you do? And a young person would be like, I go out and party, I'll buy a Lamborghini. Okay, when you get done with all that, right? And then you yeah. just got to go, what am I going to do day to day? They don't know the answer to that question. And if you don't yeah. know the answer to that question, no amount of money is ever going to get you anywhere. My other thing with money is I've always been a big giver because I believe that money is nothing but a symbol for energy. And energy follows certain rules. It cannot be created or destroyed. It only changes in form. So yeah. if, if you, you look at if you look at money and the people that I know that are the tightest with their money, they're the greediest with their money, never have any. They never have any, right? Interesting point. And if you hold, point. It's like holding sand. You walk down to the beach there in California and you pick up sand and you hold it loosely, you can hold a huge amount of sand in your hand. If you squeeze it tight, it all comes out through your fingers and out the bottom of your hand. You cannot hold on to money that way because it's energy, it's fluid, it's, it's motion. It's an agreement between members of society that we've decided that this is worth X number of hours or what have you. And, and is, until people break themselves of that paradigm, they're never going to find satisfaction in anything that they do. We're, we're going way off the end here. You're, you're definitely going to have to bring you on for discussions like this uh, in the future. Love to have you back. I, I do want to kind of... Go ahead. I'm going to send you my other book, Extreme Simplicity, so you have a chance to read it in the meantime, too, Jack. Okay, great. I want to have you back on, and I also know that this interview is going to provoke a lot of questions, so I might need to have you back on a couple times in the next few months if you'd be willing to do that. I would love to do it. Love to do it. Uh, you know, Chris, you're, you're an interesting guy. You've been through a lot. You've done a lot over the years. Do you maybe have some, like, you, you, I'm going to give you a couple minutes here just to, to throw out to the audience. These people listen to this show every day. They're worried about self-sufficiency, security. Uh, they're, they're planning for disaster, but they're also, you know, kind of trying to live the show credo, which is a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. What is like kind of like that two minutes condensed piece of advice you can leave them with? Well, okay, you know, everybody's getting older, and you you worry about your security in old age because you can't always do everything yourself. And so where do you develop this inner security? You know, you might say it's a spiritual thing, but there's an old saying that I've heard. I sought my soul. I, my soul I could not see. I sought my God. My God eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. So in other words, uh. if you're a Rambo that you do everything on your own, you're not going to make it. This inner security that we all want, it comes with developing deep friendships with other people, 
co-op, you know, cooperative ventures with other people and just learning to be flexible and adaptable. In a sense, be the kind of person that other people want to be around. I mean, uh, life is not uh, a, this lone thing. We want to be, we want to be happy. We want to pursue family. We want to pursue meaning, meaningful things. We don't want to live in fear, right? I mean, I certainly don't. I, I practice these survival skills because I want to enjoy life. I don't want to be stuck on a cliff, painful, cold, hurt, whatever. And, I, I, and I, I'm always, I must say, I'm not bragging or anything, but I'm, and maybe I'm stupid, but I'm always the one that jumps out for somebody else who's hurt or, or, or needs help, like in the neighborhood. And there's, it's amazing how many people think that they do, but I'm out on the street and they're not, you know, when there's a siren going on or there's graffiti that needs to be painted or there's somebody that needs to be challenged. I mean, you, you want to be, you want to be aggressive, I think. You don't want to be stupid, but, but uh, you know, I, I believe in uh, being an aggressive and proactive part of your community. Make the community the, the kind of community you want to live in. Somebody has to speak up when there's problems, you see. So, I don't know, that's probably more than a, a two-minute... No, minute, uh... <laughs> no that's, that's perfect. Folks, as, as, we, as we close down uh, today, I, I want you to think about what you're hearing. You're hearing somebody with a totally different vantage point, a totally different viewpoint into this thing with a totally different background than I have. I focus on permaculture and the home and everything, and, and I do know some things about wilderness survival skills, but I'm not, I'm not the guy that you could take a helicopter, fly out in the middle of the wilderness and drop off and, and just figure everything out. Uh, Christopher is. He's the guy that can do that. But he's telling you the same things that I tell you every day. Community is number one. Reaching out to the people around you. You can't make it alone. No man is an island. Building not just a, a self-sufficient lifestyle for yourself, but extending that into your community, expanding the message, being an example, not trying to drag people into it, not trying to force people into it, not telling people, well, if you cared about the planet, you would that, that's nonsense, and the people don't listen to that. But you know what? When you live the example and you demonstrate to people and you're the first one out there to help, then you attract other people. That's that's the shining city on the hill thing. And, I totally agree, Jack. And that's what we've got to do. And, and Chris, hey, thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm gonna about ready to close the show down now. I'll give you one shot for a last word uh, before I do that because we're over an hour and I, I got to wrap things up. Okay, I, I, I really appreciate being with you. And uh, uh, make sure you let your viewers know how to look at the web page and read some of my blogs. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to talking with you again, Jack. Absolutely, and uh, I'll be putting links in today's show notes to uh, to the Wilderness Way magazine, to DirtTime.com, uh, uh, to everything that I can give you on uh, Christopher, including ways to buy his book on Amazon. Uh, I really recommend that you get a copy of The Self-Sufficient Home, Going Green and Saving Money by Christopher Nidges. Uh, one of the best books I've read the past two years, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, the ability to transfer the knowledge of what to do but bring it along with a story about people who did it. Absolutely beautiful, uh, wonderful book. And, and Christopher, we're going to have you back on because we're going to talk about a bunch of things. We're going to talk about philosophy. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. And I know my listeners are going to want to have you back on. So thanks for being here, and uh, thanks for already agreeing to come back. All right, I'm looking forward to it, Jack. You have a great evening. Thank you, Christopher. And with that, I'll say this has been Jack Spierko and Christopher Nidges today. You Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.
Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouched for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything, Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.